Hello and welcome to The Big Intermission, a podcast about the future of the theater industry. I'm Emily Kling, and today I am joined by Christophe Desturbay, who wears many, many theatrical hats. From working in Daryl Roth's producing and general management offices, to being an auditioning performer himself and a dancer, he is also super passionate about disability inclusion and is committed to bringing greater accessibility to the performing arts industry at large through these various hats that he wears. You can follow some of the many ideas he has surrounding these topics on Instagram, and there's a link to it in the show notes. And you can also contact him that way as well. So here is my conversation with Christoph. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Would you mind just introducing yourself and telling me what you do, what you've been doing? We just discussed that you're still employed. Um, so what have you been up to? <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, so uh, my name is Christoph, and uh, I currently am very fortunate to still be employed. Uh, I work for uh, producer Daryl Roth. And I work both in her producing and general management office. I've been there for the past five years, five and a half years now. And then I am also a dancer, auditioning performer on the side. Yeah, many, many hats. And what's it been like? So you've been at Daryl Roth, obviously, for many years before the pandemic. What was that shift like a little over a year ago? How did your day-to-day change? How did kind of like top zoom out top level strategy change as far as you're concerned um what was that like right so um as i mentioned i've been there for five years or maybe four and a half years before the pandemic hit and it truly was uh, a very exciting moment to be in the office because so much was happening and it was actually one of the like first times when i was working there that all the projects that i had been working on for years were about to materialize and they obviously didn't <laughs> not at that time i think we had something to like maybe five or six shows opening within like the three four months before the pandemic hit so it was a very like exciting time and so that kind of you know came to a halt very quickly and um immediately i think the strategy was more okay so how can we defer all of these contacts how can we defer the production that's in place and you know think about opening it this summer, which was at the time, I get all my years mixed up. What was it? Summer of 2020? <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, so it was like, okay, so what's it gonna look like if we open then? What does it look like if we open in the fall? And then I think the reality really started um, hitting in that theater wasn't going to reopen until you know, we were looking at you know summer of 21 and now what very much looks like Labor Day of 21. So then we, you know, put our efforts towards thinking about that far ahead. But in the meantime, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, production Blindness. So Blindness, uh, which originated at the Donmore Warehouse in London, uh, premiered in the summer of 2020 in London. And it was basically a light and sound installation piece where audience members would go in and they put on a headphone basically, and they listened to the story uh, that is narrated by Juliet Stevenson. And um, so it's like a light and sound immersive experience, if you will. But uh, so basically the whole premise is that there are no performers. So you're not really 
interacting with anyone and all the audience members are socially distanced from one another. So that was a very exciting project to be working on in the midst of the pandemic. I think we started thinking about this, I guess, last summer, basically, because they all wanted to bring it over into uh, her theater in Union Square. So that kind of became a all time consuming endeavor for the office, both in her producing and general management office, because they are also overseeing the show. And you, I'm, a, I'm assuming you saw blindness. I did. I was actually, in full disclosure, a little apprehensive about seeing it at first because the show opened when, at that time, the majority of, you know, this, I think it was 50 and over had been vaccinated. And I just didn't really want to like jump in, you know, be a little too eager and then maybe contract COVID somehow. But then, you know, things started loosening up and then I got my first vaccine shot. And I was like, all right, great. I think I'm ready to go see this double mask. (laughs) Um, But now it's so interesting because if I think about it, uh, I am fully vaccinated now. But if I think about it, if I were to go to the theater, I don't think that I would be as resistant to it as I was a matter of weeks ago. Oh, totally. Well, and you realize how quickly things are changing because, you know, but a month ago, I thought we were in a very different place than I feel like we are now. And a month from now, that can change again. And it's just constant. Yeah, it can go either way. I mean, anything, the pandemic has really taught us that like you literally can't plan that far ahead, which is wild because in theater, as I'm sure you know, it's we're planning years in advance. We're planning like (laughs) like two or three seasons out. Um, So it was a very, you know, interesting take on planning. Yeah, I want to ask you how you think that might change because I was, as you were saying that, I was also just thinking, wow, but theater has such a long timeline. And do you think the planning, like, how do you think it's going to change? Do you think contracts are just going to be way more flexible and have way more clauses in them? Do you think, you know, your job will become a lot more short-term project-based as opposed to long view looking into the future um or yeah what are your thoughts on that yeah that's a great question i think that brings into question like a lot more that we deal with in the theater industry um simply put i do think that the slate of projects that are forthcoming are really going to vary um nothing is going to be you know going to a theater and this is just one example seeing wicked or seeing you know the new production of company that's about to open um, nothing's ever going to replace that. But the alternatives that have been proposed throughout the pandemic, like you know, all these Zoom shows, all these uh, streaming services that really have like amplified ways of accessing theater, um, I think that's still here to stay. I still don't think that we've perfected, as, you know, as a collective industry, what that looks like. But I definitely think that all the ideas have been put out there and over time people will continue to refine that. But I also know that brings into question union work, for example, you know, like all of the negotiations that are happening um, with equity and even sag after, like everyone's trying to find their new place within this new digital theatrical landscape. So um, I do think that what's going to happen coming forward is going to be a lot of figuring out what the theater industry can look like both as what we once knew it 
and also what the newer version of theater meant for us throughout the pandemic. Going back to blindness, which I want to ask you more right, yeah, as well. Uh, I imagine, so you said no in-person cast. When you said union, it made me think of it. But there still had to be union, like I, I imagine um, set and production personnel. No? Yeah? Of course. So uh, the biggest, at the time, the biggest like condition was that there can't be any live performances on stage. And um, we didn't have a live performer. Uh, Juliet Stevenson, you know, narrates the story through headphones that you're wearing. So that had already been pre-recorded. So all of that deal, which was dealt with, you know, first with Donmar and then us with the transfer, that had already been taken care of. And we were actually presenting blindness through um, what was the museum guideline. So that's how everything worked out. So in terms of union work and negotiation, there wasn't that much to do because ultimately this production in New York was very much a loophole to what theater was. Oh, interesting. So it was like, it fit into whatever the regulations were for museums at that point. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so I've heard great things about blindness. I didn't see it. It sounded super innovative and super cool, but I'm curious in what ways did it feel like it recreated that sort of in-person theatrical experience and made it feel reminiscent of what we're missing? And in what ways did it kind of feel like you were plugging into a, a podcast in a room with other people plugged into the same podcast? How did, how did that tension play out in your opinion? Right. Um, hmm, I have a lot, yeah, a lot coming to mind. Um, I do think that wild because so many people were both eager to return to the theater right away. And some people were equally apprehensive to go, but also the fact that this wasn't necessarily a traditional piece of theater was also alienating in itself. So the project Blindness as a show, as a light and sound installation, as an immersive experience was loosely defined. And I can't speak for the marketing and producers here, but I think it was loosely defined so that it appealed to a wide variety of New Yorkers. So I think we had to find our place in, you know, the theatrical landscape of welcoming people back and what the messaging was. And we were very careful about the messaging of the show. We were very careful about what this was and wasn't because we didn't want to keep people away from it. Does that answer the question? I think that part, I think it does answer the question, but I'm still curious what, like, here's my image of it, which is I walk into a room, I put on these headphones and in some ways I feel like I'm, I'm totally back in the theater because I'm looking around and I see strangers who are also plugged into these headphones and we're experiencing something at the same time and we're experiencing it together, but apart. But I also am like curious, well, I plug into my iPhone uh, you know, on a train and I don't feel like connection with anyone else. I mean, granted, we're not listening to the same thing. So do you, like, did you, were there moments when like everyone gasped at the same time or were there, or, or did you kind of feel like you just had a cool space to go to and listen to an audio play? I think it's a combination of both, but I also do think that the people that are going to see the show very much know that they're going to a theater And I would argue that they are 
seeking that theatrical experience out. So in reading that, you know, the house reports every single night, we always, and when I saw the show, the audience always cheers at the beginning of the show when the like house announcement comes on because it just does that collective unity. If that like, all right, you are in a theater, we are about to undergo this experience together. In that sense, it was a very theatrical moment. Sure. It sounds like it's like a self-selecting group of people who are, who have experience in like theater and experimental theater and therefore are like in it in a theatrical way together and probably also just so excited because like you said, oh my gosh, now I miss that announcement at the beginning that tells everyone to turn off their phone and take out their candy. And I'm like, wow, that, that is, it makes you realize all the things that make up the theatrical experience that I have, I've like almost forgot. I took for granted. Like I, I hadn't thought about. Of course. That. And even more than that, it's like, I think of the story itself. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with what blindness is about. It's based on a novel and the story follows this one woman, Juliet Stevenson, well, in the book as, you know, the wife of a doctor. And it's a pandemic that basically takes over the world and leaves everyone but her blind. So there are many moments in the um, show itself that you are sitting in the audience and complete darkness. I think that what you feel in there is also heightened by the fact that you are in a theater. It's heightened by the fact that you're wearing headphones and these headphones are so technologically impressive because you got like a 360 like surround experience and you really feel like Juliet is whispering in your ear at times. And so I think that, you know, collectively going through that experience with the audience that you know is also feeling something, whether they're scared, whether they're, you know, going through a deep cathartic recovery journey with the pandemic here. Um, I think that really embodies what the theatrical experience does at large and also specifically with blindness. Do you think that producers theatrical institutions are going to have more of an eye towards productions like this that adapt and work in a socially distant or just, you know, whatever, whatever comes out of this masked world, seating can be kind of funky. Do you think there's going to be an eye towards that? I think that it will be a combination of everything because as Broadway is reopening, you know, as early as September here, they're opening up at hundred percent capacity because the theater industry, the reality is, is, is that it's built around such a tight economic model that operating at reduced capacity really does not benefit anyone. So I don't think that social distancing is here to stay, but I do think heightened health and safety measures are. So, you know, the updating of filters in theaters, the hand sanitizers left and right, uh, the health questionnaires. I don't know if that's going to be there quite necessarily, but the mask wearing, um, definitely. Um, I see that, you know, kind of being in place for the next year, I guess. And then I think maybe things might ease up. And I now think there won't be, you know, a world in which you're not traveling with a mask in pocket. Or if, you know, it's like flu season and you have the sniffles, you'll probably pull out a mask. Or if you're on the subway and someone is sneezing and you're uncomfortable, you might put it on. So I think that will kind of be there to stay. But social distancing works very much for blindness. I don't think that it's going to work beyond that. 
you just made me think of this and whoever's listening and takes this idea, we would both like a cut. These shows are all going to create branded masks. Oh, 100%. 100%. There's no way they're like- That's the merch item. Oh, it's going to be incredible. And they're going to be like fun too, I think. Like the wicked ones are going to be like- I'll be buying it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Hamilton will have a pun about a shot, something like that. Yep. (laughs) There's going to be so much. Definitely. Cool. I think that's a, I think you're, that's a really good point about how the economic model doesn't support a socially distant theater. It doesn't. And I mean, I think everyone kind of, you know, dreamed about it at first. And I know that blindness is very much built around that. Like that there's such awareness around how many people can there be in a space. Like the show, the general manager really built it around being economically feasible. But if you look at a Broadway house, most new shows cannot survive on reduced capacity. Totally. Um, pivoting a little bit. So you yeah, mentioned earlier, to, to use a dance term, pivoting. Um, <laughs> right. You also mentioned, I've also made that pun before, I'm ashamed to say. Um, <laughs> it's the only one I got. But you mentioned before that you also do choreography. And I saw on your social media that um, you teach, like, is it dance workout classes? Uh, no, not quite. So okay. um, I don't even teach. So, um, uh, so I am also a dancer and a performer. And prior to the pandemic, you know, uh, I was very much, so I have a full-time job, but when I could, I would audition, I would take classes. And um, when the pandemic hit, so this is kind of also introducing a new idea, but when the pandemic hit, everything moved online. And I'm actually a hard of hearing person. I wear hearing aids and um, taking dance classes, first of all, in a tiny apartment, which is awful. But also hearing was very difficult. And I also knew that it was difficult for my non-hard of hearing friends or non-disabled friends rather. And they, I was just kind of like, all right, this isn't right. And like, I can't figure it out, but I don't really want to partake in this. It's very challenging for me. But fortunately, one of my very good friends um, is a teacher at Broadway Dance Center, Julia. And when they started opening up, they uh, had like a like Broadway Dance Center went virtual basically. So they would teach from the studios and they were allowed to have an assistant. So I was her assistant for all of her classes throughout, I guess it's been, I guess we're coming up on a year now. So um, once a week I was able to go at Broadway Dance Center, uh, which the both of us in the studio with like giant like TV screens and the class would happen. And in that I was realizing things that I had never realized before I was because so my like I I was a lot more aware of what I was able and what I wasn't able to hear and I I was being aware of that at home when everything was online but then being in the studio I was like wait I'm missing out on so much more that I'd never even thought of in doing that I realized that zoom classes in this zoom platform this online digital platform across the board was somewhat inaccessible. So in my time, I've like for the past year, I've really been ruminating about accessibility. And it just so happened that blindness was a production that you go in. First of all, it's in the title, (laughs) blindness. And then you go in, you put on headphones. And I just like many ideas were circulating. And I was like, wait, 
not everything about this production, not everything about, you know, these online platforms are accessible. So I really started thinking about bringing accessibility to theater, dance at large. Right now I'm pretty, you know, concentrated on how to make dance classes a little more accessible, but I'm also working on doing that in theater. So that was a totally new introduction of a new topic right there. I'm fully aware I did that, <laughs> but put it out oh, there. I'm so glad you did because I want to hear more about it. How, what are the ways in which you're seeing opportunities to make dance classes more accessible? And then I want to hear about theater. So of course, yeah, for all so, of it. love it. So I guess, and I'm sure you know this, that if you like follow any performer or dancer on social media, you know, they love posting videos of them dancing and the art they make. and absolutely love it. But in my newfound awareness, I would say, um, I realized that this, what they were putting out wasn't entirely accessible. So I was thinking about it more personally. And I was like, all right, so what would I personally need to like, make a video experience on social media to begin with more accessible. And I realized that, you know, lyrics are something that I may not necessarily hear ever because it's too much going on and it's not how I hear a sound with my hearing aids. So I was like, all right, what if I start putting lyrics on, you know, like the videos that I post of me dancing? And then I was like, all right, that only helps the deaf and the hard of hearing communities, but what about the low vision community? So I was doing research and I found out there's something called audio description, which is basically where you describe the environment that's going around you. And more and more I'm seeing on social media, like not necessarily in dancer videos, but just regular pictures, people provide image descriptions below their captions. And they're like, all right, this is a photo of X, Y, Z. And this person is in the red t-shirt, for example, and they're standing in front of a tree. And I was like, how do I bring that to dance? And so in filming class, because we would put our phone to like film ourselves, you know, watch ourselves do the movement, I heard Julia like describing the movement to the people that were taking class. She'd be like, all right, and now you're gonna ball change and drag and relevate. Like, and in watching that video, I was like, oh wait, that's the answer. So I was like, all right, so we need to start audio describing the movement so that people that can't necessarily process the footage uh, because they are, you know, low vision maybe they just need to like hear what's going on. So I told Julie about this and we started making these videos where she would audio describe the movement. And I would also caption that because <laughs> then, you know, you're being a lot more inclusive to the disability community at large. So that's how I'm thinking about it in terms of like social media content for dance. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that we're in a place where accessibility lives in the digital platform that well, I know that there's a feature on Zoom, for example, where you can like caption what's going on. Um, but that doesn't necessarily help because I don't think that we have the technology yet that can accurately transcribe what's being said. You know, sometimes I don't know if this has happened to you, but if you're watching the news, for instance, on TV um, and there are captions, they're like 30 seconds too late and they don't necessarily get all the words. I think we're still very much in that technological phase and that's not here to stay forever. People are clearly working on improving it, but right now I just don't know how accessible, you know, Zoom platform, digital platforms are. 
but I know that people are very aware and making it more accessible. And thinking about theatrical spaces, right? Like there's this long pause, institutions are recommitting themselves to various initiatives and, and in theory, we'll have to invest in some redevelopment of these spaces, whether that's the, you know, the air purifiers or, you know, you mentioned the Purell, like the right. Do you think that theaters are going to, and, and theater companies are going to like make more strides towards accessibility? And in what ways do you think maybe they should? Like, what are the, some like short-term ways they could do it long-term dream like you know it would take maybe more years for some of these places to do it but like would be awesome if they did of course so i think i have several answers to that first uh, i'm going to tie back to blindness quite frankly i just want to preface everything that i'm about to say that like this is a learning curve for so many people because clearly this is something that people don't necessarily think about me being hard of hearing i didn't even think about it until like last year when i realized i was being stripped of all the things that Stripped is a hardcore term, but like it was a lot more difficult to pursue what I loved. So blindness, literally, first of all, it's in the title as, you know, a headphone experience. And right there to me, I know that not all headphones work for me and my hearing. So I was like, ooh, I'm not sure if I'm going to even be able to hear the show. And then I also knew that, you know, there's whispering that happens in the show. And I'm like, I can't hear whispering. And I also know that older patrons who are the vast majority of the theatrical audience may also not hear whispers or they may not hear other things. And I'm like, how is this going to be accessible? So uh, initially uh, with you know, the team, Daryl's team, we looked into providing subtitles somehow, or like if you could get you know, like a tablet that you know, followed what was happening on the headphones. Um, and that brought up so many more issues. The first one is that the show takes place, a lot of it takes place in darkness. And if you have any like inkling of light, it ruins the experience. So that was number one. And I'm like, all right, well, we're not gonna be able to solve that. <laughs> and um, also in order to do that, you need to have like a Bluetooth loop installed in the theater that connects what's happening in the sound and projects it onto your phone. That is incredibly expensive to install. And I know that some Broadway theaters have it. And I've spoken to people in my research about this, about it. And they're like, yeah, it's incredibly expensive. You know, it's not perfected. Like there's such a delay in the transmission of what's being, you know, set on stage, transcribed onto your phone. Like I was telling you about the news, like there's such a delay. So I was realizing that things were really, really expensive. I was also thinking about, you know, how do we make our social media content accessible to the low vision community that is maybe consuming this or even the hard of hearing that like is not hearing what's being said on the videos. And um, these were not things that had been taken into account as we were mounting the production. So by the time that the production was on its feet, I guess I was in a different place thinking about it. And it was like, oops, too little, too late. And I'm not saying that's okay. But I also realized, and I'm not deflecting the blame whatsoever, but I also realized that no one else is, that I know of is necessarily thinking about that. No one else in the theatrical space is doing this on a commercial level. Um, so then I really started doing more research and it's like, 
I've been thinking about it. I'm like, why is it that like in, and this is strictly commercial, this is not not-for-profits, but commercial theater, I can't think of that many disabled performers that were on stage in knowing that one in four American has a disability. And a disability does not limit itself to, you know, being in a motorized like wheelchair. It's not wearing hearing aids or being low vision. It is such a wide umbrella of disabilities. And so in thinking about who has been on stage recently, I mean, off the top of my head, there was Ali Stroker and Madison Ferris in Oklahoma and Glass Menagerie. And those productions were great. I personally loved them. And I think in looking back at it, I think I loved them because they were not disability focused. They were just, I'm not going to say inclusive, but they were inclusive. And it's not like the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening, because that to me was very much of a, I mean, it's Deaf West. So it's like an institution that is committed to disability that is being produced in a commercial stage. It's not an organically inclusive environment. For example, I think about, I don't know, like the newer productions of West Side Story, Mean Girls, for example. Everyone is so talented on stage and I might be entirely wrong. I'm not sure that one in four person on that stage has a disability. And so I've been thinking a lot more about this, especially in light of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial justice movement that, and reckoning that the theater industry has been faced with. So in this like deep moment of reckoning, personally, I was also thinking about the disabled community, another community that very much shoved aside in the performing arts and the theatrical process. So that's that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Also, I think I remember you had another question. It was, so what, what are we doing moving forward? So I think I brought it up, but I think that bringing accessibility, unfortunately, right now is incredibly expensive. And I think it's incredibly expensive to do that because it's not been normalized yet. Um, and I'm not talking about the theater industry. I'm talking about all around. Disability is, has not been normalized. So I think that right now in the near future, a lot more noise and a lot more attention has to be brought towards accessibility, inclusion, disability in the theatrical space so that people can start taking the necessary measures to be that much more inclusive and ultimately a lot more representative of the people that want to take part in theater, whether that's on stage, backstage, or in the audience. I'm I'm so glad you you brought this up because this is so interesting. Um, and I think you're right. It's something that has a steep learning curve and a lot of people don't think about as much as they should. And I think if this time has given us anything, it's time to think and to you know, reevaluate and recommit ourselves in, in a variety of ways. Do you think this is the sort of work you might like one day want to pivot into full time and, and like, you know, be somebody who is like an innovator and a change maker when it comes to accessibility on Broadway? Yeah, 100%. So if this past year has taught me any, anything, it's that I really think that this is my place in the theater world. I've been a theater lover forever and I'm not going anywhere. So I really think that that is what I can channel my energy and passion towards. 
which is wild because I guess a few years ago, I never would have wanted to do it, probably with my own discomfort surrounding my hearing loss, quite frankly. And I think last year, it was inevitable for me to kind of have to deal with these issues head on if it meant pursuing what I'd love to do. Um, so in doing that, I was like, you know what, maybe I'm just kind of going to channel my energy and resources into helping make the performing arts and theater a lot more accessible. So I do have a few projects lined up, but I can't necessarily speak to that just yet. But um, all to say, yes, very much um, this bringing accessibility is very much what I'm thinking about doing. That's awesome. I'm excited for when the projects are public to All right. <laughs> That's very cool and very important. So my last question is just, what are you most looking forward to when live in-person theater returns? That's a good question. Um, hmm. I do wanna say that I can't wait eventually to see Wicked and Wicked is not my favorite musical. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but just it's quintessentially musical theater that like, I need to see Defying Gravity. Like, I, I need to have that moment. <laughs> it's musical theater. It's like, <laughs> we've all seen it. We know it. We love it. But that said, as much as I do want to see it, I say that with a lot of apprehension and that I don't necessarily, I want to be very careful about theater not automatically reverting to what it was. And I say that under... Uh, representation lens. I also say that in accessibility, well, for disability, but also economically, like we really got to a point where people were paying a thousand dollars to go see a show. And I understand that it helps the economic model of making money back in a production when so few do, but it shuts so many people out from experiencing that. So yes, I really want to see Wicked and I'm really happy that theater is opening back up again but I really hope that we don't revert to what we once knew and that we collectively try to make greater efforts to inclusion, accessibility, and being a healthy community. You have been listening to The Big Intermission. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how people find out about it. And it just helps get the word out. You can also go to the website, www.thebigintermissionpodcast.com and check out the other episodes. You can reach out to me. I check the email. And thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week.